I've been doing a study on inequality. What do you think God says about inequality? I haven't studied enough to say that I would have a good answer for you. So then in culture today, there's this idea. If you study like, have you heard of modern monetary theory, MMT? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of these different, we got to call Brad at some point and get him on this show because he's a... Uh, Which Brad? Because I think you know like seven... Bradley like Gibbs. He's an expert at um, all things economics. He hates MMT. Obviously, the country's in like, I don't know, $40 trillion of debt. But the, there's this big thing around wealth inequality, income inequality. Let's just, before we get into like what the Bible says, let me break down what, I, what this idea sort of is. There are people who are uh, so rich that they are beginning to have a return on capital that is higher than a return on labor. So a return on labor is when you like you go to a job, you clock in, you do your work, and then you get paid for that. That's like basics. You know, what was your first job ever? You remember? Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A. So my first job was a Starbucks at a, um, at a supermarket. You know, they put Starbucks in like these shopping centers and I got fired from that job one night because I just left and didn't like shut down everything. I think it was like 17 maybe. And so yeah, they fired me. They don't know what they were doing. They just they just fired me. Um, but your first job, you're not making much money. This is your return on labor. As you get skilled, there's like skilled labor. We talk about this all the time. Like you've got your different layers of, of labor. So if you have like a programmer, really good at at what they do they're going to get paid more than a janitor because one is skilled labor and one is not but there comes a tier where you are wise with your money you save a bit you invest a bit and my entire like philosophy on money comes from i want eventually when i was growing up i wanted to get into that tier where i could get into return on capital so let's say you buy um an asset, you buy a house, you get some Bitcoin, whatever, and that asset begins to rise, you have a return that is getting paid to you from things that you didn't actually do. So the poor, poor people, and I don't mean that derogatorily, I just mean people who are broke, they're, they're poor because of the things that they don't do, they're doing wrong. Rich people are rich because of the things they do. Wealthy people are wealthy because of the things they own. So you go through this this hierarchy, right? Where you're learning how to do the right things, then you're learning how to own the right things. So people are frustrated because there are really rich people who make more money just by the things that they own than anyone else can make by things that they do. So labor is one, capital is the other. When you get a, a an economy that's generational, and we are in a generational economy because there's no... Uh, people pass on wealth from one generation to the next. There's a lot of people who actually argue for 100% um, death tax. What's that? It would would erase the generational transfer from one generation to the next. And so it would would take the money from one family, they would put it back into the the money supply. And it gives, what, what people are saying is that it would give more of an equal footing for new people coming up. But we're not in that, we're not in that economy. So we're in a generational transfer where there is always money being passed on to the next generation. And so that's why you have, have you ever heard the term trust fund babies? Mm-hmm. That's generational transfer. So like they are being raised in an environment where they have m- 
money just because of their bloodline, because of who their parents are. Mm-hmm. So I got two kids right now, and both of them have whole, uh, insurance policies. Uh, we have insurance policies for us, and when I die, the money would be paid into an estate, and that estate is managed through trusts, and my daughter will have the ability to start a business or buy a house. This is the generational transfer, which is actually, if we want to go into it, it's actually very biblical. There's a verse, he's, you know, a, a wise man leaves an inheritance to his what? Kids. That's generational transfer, like right there. So it's actually, I understand the idea of like 100% death tax, but it's, it actually kind of is not scriptural if you think about it, because we're being instructed to do the opposite. Mm. Inequality is when it's almost called unfair that some people cannot get ahead. So what is the the idea that I that I've been studying is like what is what does God say about that? And what is the biblical narrative around some people being poor and some people being rich? And what I found is that from the lens of scripture uh, it actually is a very biblical idea that some people are poor and some people are rich. There's capitalism all throughout the Bible. So you've got all these people that are, that, like a lot of people, a majority of people are poor like in, in like ratio to rich. When it comes to those people's mindsets, like I think we think a lot of times about like money is the, is the goal and success is the goal. And then because Solomon wrote Proverbs and then he also wrote Ecclesiastes and he's like, life's meaningless. Yeah, he goes from one extreme to the other. Yeah. He's like, Solomon's interesting because he actually made the right call when God asked him, what do you want? Like, give you anything you want. And he didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for land. He didn't ask for, and like the, to the Jewish people, like land is a sign of, of wealth. Mm-hmm. So there's, a, there's an old book, and I forget what it's called, old, like, like a thousand years old, where they're basically saying, take a third of what you make and save it. Take a third of what you make and put it into land. And take a third of what you make and put it into businesses. So businesses, land, and then accumulation is kind of their trident. But um, Solomon goes, he goes, yeah, just give me wisdom. And Solomon knew that if he could be wise and have a sense of like, what do I do? Then he would probably inherit everything else. And God saw that too. He's like, all right, cool. I'm going to give you wisdom and I'm going to give you everything else. Because just the fact of Solomon wasn't born dumb. He was already wise. Mm -hmm. How do we know that? Because only a wise person would ask for more wisdom. Mm-hmm. So, like when you look at like the majority of people who are who are struggling with poverty today, they're, they're not asking for wisdom. You know, they're they're looking they're, to be at the level where you have to ask for wisdom means that you already have some wisdom. Mm-hmm. So Sol- Solomon was asking for compound interest. Is really what he was going for. Um, rather than asking for something he didn't have, he was asking to multiply something that he already possessed. Have you noticed that? That's actually an interesting. I've never heard that pointed out before. It's like having, um, it's like having a uh, the gift of faith, and then when God asks you what you want, you ask for more faith. It's like actually he, he he was a multiplier. It's like wealthy people are always multipliers. So they're not they're not asking typically for just like a linear give me more of this. That's just a one plus one. They're looking for leverage. So Solomon was like king of leverage because he already had some wisdom. He wanted some more wisdom. And then he got really, really rich 
because of that wisdom. But then he pendulum swung where he, uh, if you actually study Solomon, he made some dumb decisions and he kind of deviated from what he knew was the right way. And then he was like, yeah, everything sucks. <laughs> Nothing's, nothing matters. We're all going to die. And uh, that, that kind of, the, the scripture is like this giant set of principles that hold tight the tension in the middle. There's very little like true black and white in the Bible. A lot of it is the way that life and nature were designed, which is tension in the middle. And that's the same thing with wealth, if we think about it, and income and inequality. It's tension in the middle, so there's both sides. Like, what does God say about income inequality? Well, he's a fan. Can't get around it. So why is it that way on earth, but it won't be, will it be the same way in, on, in heaven as it is on earth? I think it depends on like, what do we think about heaven? Is heaven a dimension? Is it a place? Is it a realm? And um, I think that the heart of God is not for people to suffer uh, in, in a way that is not productive. But um, we're not in heaven right now. And I think our mission is to bring heaven to earth. And so what does that look like is, is I don't think that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of handouts. I think the kingdom of God is actually a kingdom of learning how to operate inside a set of principles that God designed us to live in. And then when you're obedient in those principles, there is blessing and your life moves forward. And everything works that way. It's not just money. It's, it is sexuality and it is fulfillment. It is impact. It is joy and happiness and peace. But there's tension even in joy where joy is not always the same as uh, circumstantial happiness. In fact, when you study like Paul, he said, I've learned to be content with a lot and content with a little. And he's talking about that tension between like, I think there's actually a scripture where he says, no, this is, um, this might be, uh, this might be, this might be the teacher in, in Proverbs. You'll have to look it up where he's like, my only request is don't give me so much that I don't need God, but don't give me so little that I have to go rob Debbie down the street to pay, you know, to pay for my food. That's tension. He's asking for God to give him enough, but not so much that he feels like he doesn't need dependence. Yeah. This is my biggest challenge, man, growing up and coming up in like my career. We've talked about this, but like when so much money was coming in, I think that I struggled to have a dependence on God because I didn't actually feel like I needed anything. Mm -hmm. And the the teacher, and we don't know if this is Solomon or not who wrote this. So just, the actual term for, for this person writing it was the teacher. Mm. He was basically asking God to remove the temptation of not needing God by putting him in the middle. Which doesn't that usually come back to generosity? It, yeah, it's a, it, this is, generosity is, is the weapon. Like, I had this um, realization one time I was sitting in church, it's probably 2019, 2020, and my businesses were doing well. And people have to understand, like, I didn't grow up poor. We were kind of average middle class. And then when my wife and I got married, man, we were like dirt poor. Like, I would almost like, I would almost, we were below the poverty line for several years. And my wife was so supportive, but at the same time, you can sort of tell when like, Yo, she's supportive, but she's also like, hey, man, you need to, like, figure your life out. 
because um, she had moved from Missouri to Memphis. We were living in Memphis at the time. And she was helping me like do the budget and she was just like, you know, take your time, but I don't think that you can continue on with what you're doing. It was actually my wife that was really important for me making the decision to like leave vocational ministry. And it's not that vocational ministry is bad and it's not that I don't agree with vocational ministry. It's just just that when you look at how vocational ministry in the West works, they just capitalize on free labor. Imagine if, if churches were not allowed to have free labor. They, most of them wouldn't survive. Or imagine if churches had to actually pay taxes. What that would do, honestly, let me just share an opinion that's probably going to make people mad. Um, I think if churches had to pay taxes, it would remove a lot of the churches that should not be churches. They wouldn't be here anymore because they, they're not good stewards. So how does a business get kicked out of the, out of the, you know, the, the gene pool of, of business? Well, they, they're bad stewards, so they, they don't survive. But with churches, there's an artificial uh, survivorship bias that is kind of put into the pool because you can be a really bad church. You can be awful at stewarding money. You can be a horrible steward of people and you can still survive every year because there's no natural consequences of being a bad steward. That's a different topic for another day. But the tension in in Scripture is all throughout Proverbs you see you see the Word of God saying like if you can work hard and if you can become skilled then you can move ahead financially, economically. And we can go through those scriptures if you want. But then there's also this counterbalance of when you are prioritizing wealth above everything else, then you will lose the proximity you have with kingdom things and spiritual things. And you lose your proximity even to God. Because anything that becomes more important than your closeness to God becomes an idol. And idolatry is what separates that relationship. Seems like that's because you're trying to multiply the thing that he gave you, not multiply the mission. Yeah, or it's the it's the it's the reliance that has been switched around. So when I became in 2020, when I became reliant on my gift rather than reliant on what is God asking me to do, it was uh, yeah, it, it it removed me from closeness to God. I, I lost that, hmm. and it wasn't until you know, sometimes they're like, why does does God cause bad things to happen? Yes and no. Absolutely, he can. Like he can, absolutely. And the, but the purpose and the motive, like deciphering scripture, is really about deciphering the intents of a person's heart. And God, the Bible says, God judges the heart, but man can't judge the heart. But God judges the heart. So that 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 tells us that motive is really important, because an an intent is a motive. And if your intentions are wrong, we use a biblical term, evil, if you have an evil intention, then even the right thing for the wrong reason becomes the wrong thing. So motive is what is almost the, the arbiter of whether something is good or bad.
And so take this as an example. Like, I think that everyone watching this has an obligation to not be poor. I think you're obligated to. You're, it's not a choice. It's not like, hey, just decide who you want to be. No, I think you have an obligation to have resources because if you have no resources, you have no leverage. So if you have no resources, let's just go through like, who are you not like? You're not like Solomon. You're not like Abraham. You're not like David. There's a woman business owner in the New Testament named Lydia. You know who Lydia is? Lydia was, she sold, um, she sold uh, garments and clothing and fabrics. Well, Lydia was who supported Paul, opened up her house for a place of worship. Well, how are you going to do that if you have no house, bro? So like all throughout history, God's using these wealthy people. Uh, Melchizedek, wealthy. He's using these wealthy people because they resource and equip the mission. So if you're, if you're broke, you don't have that many people in the Bible who were like movement makers to, to relate to. Now, am I saying that there were not poor people who were effective? Not what I'm saying. You have like... Because yeah, how, how do you separate that? Because like, I don't think of Elijah or Elisha as rich. I also didn't think of them as poor because they were always provided for. So what's your... Who provided for them? Exactly. That's, my, that's the question is, what is that exact definition of poor that you're relating to there? No resources, no access, and no ability to... Uh, obedience at a certain level will require resources. So there are examples, but it comes back to the intent of the heart. So there's Jesus is um, observing one time um, a bunch of people giving at the altar. And there's this really, really poor woman who has nothing. But she takes like one little coin that she has and she gives it. And Jesus is like, that's it. That's the kingdom of heaven. And that's an example for us of like, it's, it is not all about how much you have. It's not your resources. There are the, um, was it Jericho where the, where the prostitute puts a, cloth out her window and basically hides the the spies that are in the city so that they're not taken captive. Well, she didn't have much money. Uh, prostitutes are not, it's not like the chosen chosen work that nobody grows up being like, I'm going to do that for a living. But the intentions of her heart were pure. And so what did the, what did the person say? He said, you'll be in the line of David. And you'll be remembered in history. Maybe not the line of David. I the lineage of Jesus. The, the lineage of Jesus. Um, so like that's, that's tension again. Like it's, that's the way that the Bible is always going to work. And um, humans are very complicated. And so it would not be the word of God if it did not mirror, rival, and decipher the hearts of men. And so your heart is never going to be without complications and confusion and tension and a little bit of areas in the middle and I think that that's the beauty of the Bible where it's like we get to see the examples in the full spectrum and we got to see Paul when he was rich and we got to see him when he was poor but the key was he was the same person in both and 
He was completely dependent on God in both. Um, Solomon wasn't. And so Solomon becomes an example of what not to do with wealth because he changed. So there's an interesting key here where when, when wealth changes you, it might not be the godly kind of wealth. It might not be your heart might be wrong. And I know wealth changed me. And um, that was part of like my season of honestly repentance and going through like, okay, I was way too dependent on something that was not God. And I don't think God likes that. I think that that becomes an idol really quick. Would you have done it different? If I would have known, yeah. But the, that's, not how, that's not how life works. Have you ever heard the common saying that people, like people say this in YouTube all the time, they're like, it's always the millionaires, they say every, they're like, don't get rich, and then everyone gets rich, and then they're like, don't do get rich, and it's just this like repeating hamster wheel that just goes on and on and on. Yeah, but getting rich is great. Getting rich is great. I mean, it's, the Proverbs would not say like, the plans of the diligent lead to profit, if the goal, if, if there was no upside or utility in, in generating a profit. Um, this is the thing with like the Jewish people even, like they were blessed with a unique insight around money and provision. And when, even when you look at how they operate in business and how they, you even loaning and lending, what does the Bible say? Like be the, be the lender, not the borrower. Well, there's, and you look at all the massive banks that were started from that principle and it's a very common concept in jewish culture of like lending i was just talking with somebody the other day who uh he was driving a truck and i was like where'd you get this truck you would know this person he was leading worship at the church i was like dude where'd you get that truck i didn't know you had a, a ford raptor truck he was like i loaned a a bunch of money to somebody and it collateral we collateralized it through uh, his trucks and i'm just driving the truck till he pays me back I'm like, bro, that's like the coolest thing ever. Like, I want to do that. Um, well, that's dude, That's a biblical principle, like, of how do you create wealth? Well, dude, he's loaning money to someone who's probably, I don't know what he's doing, probably starting a business or buying a house or whatever. And so both people rise through that. And both people, like, that's, I think capitalism has become this weird zero-sum game, but it's actually not the way it was intended to work. Capitalism, commerce, um, goods and services, GDP, all this stuff is designed to enrich and expand people's not only standard of living, but their access to going from one economic tier to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. If you go back and like you, you look at India is still in a caste system. Why? Like, where, how does a caste make any sense at all? These people are, this is the way that the world used to work where people are just stuck and you can't get out of that system. There's no mobility. You, have, you remove upward mobility from a civilization or economy and that economy tends to this kind of sometimes struggle and there's strife in the middle. And I think this is the beauty is the Proverbs doesn't say, hey, if you were born poor, you're just stuck forever. Good luck. It says, no, become skilled, wake up earlier. The person who left sleep will eventually have no food to eat. It's just biblical principle, like wake up earlier, do your job, like get better at your job and plan. The plans of the diligent lead to profit. Plan well. So we're getting secrets 
through this biblical lens, how do you change your economic station? But if you can change your economic station, do you believe you can? Mm -hmm. That basically says that if you can change it, there are people who will not change it. And therefore, the economics tier that you find yourself in is on you. Because if you were stuck and you couldn't change it, then we're violating the justice side of scripture. And that's a problem. But if you can change it, it's not injustice that creates uh, income or economic inequality. It's not injustice. It is your own choices and your own decisions that change it. So how does someone like me go from canceling dinners, we can't afford an oil change, we live in a $700 a month like ratchety apartment, we have no money to like three years later cash millionaires, a couple years later eight figure net worth, a couple years, like how does that happen? Those, the principles that are in the Bible and I picked the skill and I got really good at that skill. And the more skilled you are, the more people will pay you for that skill. And the more people pay you for that skill, if you learn how to treat the money the way that the Bible instructs us to treat it. This is the parable of the talents, where you're taking money and the person who buried it in the ground was called evil or wicked. The person who took the money and dispersed it into things that would multiply the money, they were called faithful. I mean, people just aren't reading the Bible. This is it's in the Bible. And when you have a little bit of money, you have to be a steward of that money. And being a steward of that money means you figure out then, how do I take this money, put it into the market, and make that money multiply itself? And this takes us all the way back full circle to return on capital versus return on labor. The, prince, the parable of the talents, we're talking about return on capital. They didn't take the money and then go work their little, you know, their, their butt off trying to earn more money. No, they took the money, they invested it, they multiplied it. You want to know where it gets really crazy? The money, where did it come from? Master. He gave it to them? Yep. No. He lended it to them. He expected it back. That's called debt, D-E-B-T. So we're like talking about tension. It's like, yo... When you're like, all debt is bad, never use debt, debt's a horrible thing. Okay, well, the Bible's invalidated. What is debt? It's a tool. Master gave them money with the expectation that he was going to get that money back in equal portion. Nope, with interest, bro. Mm -hmm. That's called debt. So he gave it to him. He said, I want to return on this. That's debt. And the person who just took the money, put it into the ground is wicked because the person who lended it did not get their interest. They didn't get the money back plus some. Mm. So where is there room in, in scripture for us to use debt as a tool to jump from one economic status to the next? Absolutely. There's a story right there. Tension. Because the Bible also says, <clears throat> you know, the borrower is servant to the lender and so you should be the lender not, but where do you start? You got to start somewhere. So I think it's hilarious sometimes that people are like, debt is evil, don't ever get into debt. What, well, you got to start somewhere. You, you have to use the tools that 
that you're given in the stage that that you're given them you know have you ever thought about that 100 <clears throat> percent. you're the one that taught me that like i wouldn't i was never willing to go out on a limb until i started working with you and then in order for me to help other people you had to teach me that debt was actually something that you could use to your own advantage yeah that's not i don't think that that means that you should layer up your whole life and go into crazy debt that you know you can't pay off. Mm -hmm. I think there's stewardship still. Want one of these? No. You sure? I'm good. It's great for you, dude. It's like a cold plunge. We'll talk about. So if you guys are wondering, Taylor Taylor takes nicotine pouches to get by. No, not to get by. <laughs> Sometimes it's just like. Smoking cigars is, I've got some really good friends who love to smoke cigars, and they're always smoking cigars, writing copy, putting together stuff, and I'm like, dude, it's just nasty. Like, when you smoke a cigar afterwards, you feel kind of like, just like you rolled around in mud. It's kind of disgusting, mm -hmm. the way that it, the way that it smells. But you're one to talk to, and coffee's worse than nicotine. Tell me. Coffee, co caffeine is like, it's the same receptors in the brain. Like it's caffeine and nicotine. You both, they're both vasoconstrictors. Like they do the exact same things. Hmm. I got to a place with caffeine, dude, where I was like, bro, I could, I could not drink. I did, I would, I could easily go without caffeine for a week or like a month and I would not notice. Like biologically, no difference. It's physically impossible, but at I least love the noticeable that difference. That. So yeah, let's check this out. Let's switch gears on the yeah, yeah. on the other side. This is a couple verses. Psalm, uh, Proverbs ten four. Slackers will know what it means to be poor, while the hard worker becomes wealthy. That sort of suggests that if you are poor, and you want to know how to become wealthy, then that that hard work component seems to be a lever. That's what the Bible is saying. Like. A slacker, poor, hard worker, wealthy. Like it seems to be like there's a lever in the middle that you can you can use as a skill, push the button, and then you can know what it's like to become wealthy. Do you agree with that? Yep. Here's another thing though, this right after this, and I think this is important. Know the importance of the season you're in. That also suggests to me that there are gonna be seasons where <clears throat> you have a lot coming in and seasons where you don't. And it's important to know, like, what season are you in right now? Not everyone is in a season. Like, you might be watching this and be like, I'm just in a season where I'm, like, learning the skills. I am trying to, like, up-level my own confidence. Like, you might be, you might, some, you might not be in a season where you're supposed to make a lot of money. Maybe you're in a season where you're just supposed to be sacrificing your time and donating your time to causes that you believe in, that's totally fine. Um, put it in perspective, like I don't believe this idea that if you didn't make more money this year than last year, you're failing. I think that's bogus. I think it's stupid. There are seasons in my life where I made no money. There are seasons in my life where I made incredible money. There are seasons in my life, like, honestly, this is being real with you. I'm in a season right now where Economically speaking, if you compare me to like most of the worlds, I'm doing pretty well. But if you compare me to three years ago, I'm not making as much as I was three years ago. 
And so I can't freak out about that. It's important to know the season that, that I'm in right now. I'm in a season of building. I'm in a season of tuning. I'm in a season of, of personal growth. And sometimes it's hard to grow on the inside. This is an interesting principle here. It's hard, it's hard to grow on the inside if you're surrounded by constant growth and chaos on the outside. There's a great book called uh, Anonymous. Have you read it? Mm-hmm. It's about Jesus. And it's about his first 30 years. And he was obscure and anonymous. And we don't know a lot about what happens. We just know that he existed. But he wasn't on the radar. You know, like when, when, all, when everyone's obsessed right now with like building my personal brand and getting known and getting famous, it's like, well, that, that's, that's not always the goal. Like right now, I don't think, my goal is not, it's actually not to become really famous right now because I'm going through a lot of growth internally. And I'm not even as concerned about like setting revenue records in my companies or like record asset acquisitions. I'm focused right now on the inner work. This is like a tree growing. You plant a seed in the tr- in the in the grounds. What happens? It grows over time. Technically, what happens is nobody notices. That's exactly what happens. Like, I go outside, I put a seed in the ground, and for a year, does anybody know I put that seed there? Nope. Does anybody have any idea that I've done the work to water that seed? Or nobody can nobody can see it. Nobody can touch it. And so we've got these these people who <clears throat> they planted the seed in the ground, but they feel like they're failing. Because no one else can see it, and it's a it's a perversion of of nature. It's a perversion of how growth actually works. What if Jesus, when he was twenty one years old, would have been like, "I'm failing my father's ministry because there's not big crowds." If if Jesus was born right now, let's say Jesus was born in two thousand and ten, nobody would know who he is. You literally have Jesus, like the most famous man in history, the son of God. Nobody would know him. Nobody would be watching him on YouTube. He would have no subscribers on social media. And we want to be like Jesus, but we're not willing to go through the 30 years that Jesus went through as a nobody. This is why Jesus is so cool, man. Like... He didn't care. He like saw the end and didn't care. Did you watch the Super Bowl? Mm-hmm. You know when Mahomes threw that, that uh, interception? So he, threw, he throws an interception, which for Mahomes is like, he definitely wasn't on his A game. I don't know what he was doing that, that game. Who am I to talk about Mahomes, one of the greatest quarterbacks ever? But from my opinion, Mahomes, if you're watching this, I don't think you were on your A game, but your team covered, so it's great. When he threw, I'm a... I'm not a fan, but I grew up in Missouri, so I'm like sort of a fan. When you threw the interception, I'm like, what are we doing? Like, no. And if you're a fan, like, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're just like, no, this is not what you want to happen. But then a replay came on. If you watch the replay of the game, picture you're watching the game the second time. When he throws the interception, but you know that they won, what do you do? It doesn't bother you. It doesn't matter at all. You're like, oh, that makes the story better. 
throw another one, right? Well, when you see the end, you're not emotionally reactive to the ups and downs in the middle. So this is a problem with Christians right now, honestly. Like Christians are so reactive. And when I look at my life, right now I've got to realize, just like Jesus, like there's an ending point where I'm going to have everything that God says I'm going to have. So I don't have to live in fear. I don't have to live in anxiety or insecurity. Like when people look at me now, they might be like, oh, he's not making... He's not making a billion dollars a year. It doesn't matter. Like at some point that's going to happen. It's been written in a book somewhere in heaven. It's my destiny. And so I think that this is a secret here where it's like Jesus was a nobody. And the coolest part about Jesus is that he didn't care. He wasn't trying to go out and build his name. He was a master of timing. And when you can become a master of timing, by the way, you can only become a master of timing when you see the whole plot. When you become a master of timing, you're not emotionally plagued in the middle. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So anyway, we're talking about knowing the importance of, of seasons. This is Proverbs 10, 4 through 5. Know the importance of the season that you're in and a wise son or daughter you will be. Proverbs 12, 11, work hard at your job and you'll have what you need. What does that mean? Work hard. It means to have what you need, you have a lever. You can push, pull that lever. It also says following a get-rich-quick scheme. This is why I kind of like the Passion Translation because it just says stuff. Uh, following a get-rich-quick scheme is nothing but a fantasy. What does that tell me? It means that usually the godly form of growth is paced well. It's measured well. And it's never... You don't read any stories in the Bible of people getting rich because of FOMO. No fear of missing out. FOMO is a destructive quality. It's, it's not actually going to serve you well. The cravings, it keeps going, the cravings of the wicked are only for what is evil, but righteousness is the core motivation. There it is, motive. It's all about intent. Righteousness is the core motivation for the lovers of God, and it keeps them content and flourishing. What does content mean? It means what Paul was saying. If I have a lot, I'm content. If I have a little, I'm content. But flourishing is different. And flourishing is an interesting word because to flourish means that you are maximizing the season that you're in. You can have a young tree, Psalms, like, like palm trees planted next to a river. And he says, you'll be fruitful in old age. I had to memorize this verse when I was on staff of the church because it was like my pastor's like favorite verse. And when you have a young palm tree, that palm tree can be flourishing, but it's four feet tall. And then you can have a, an old palm tree that's flourishing and it's 15 feet tall. It's not about, flourishing is not defined by how much money you have or how many fans or followers you have. Flourishing is really the maximization of the season that you're in. And what happens if that four foot palm tree compares itself to the 15 foot palm tree because the 15 foot palm tree is bigger than it is and all of a sudden you disrupt nature in an unhealthy way. This is all stuff you can pull out of the Bible if people if you just read it. Um, Proverbs 14, 23, if you work hard at what you do, so all of Proverbs is basically like, don't be a lazy piece of shit. That's basically what Proverbs is. It's basically this, the teacher saying like, you're all lazy. 
You want to know why you're poor? It's because you're lazy. You know, in in that time, it was like you would go you would go to the to the local meetup and you would play play cards or roll the dice. Today, it's like yo, you spend all your time on TikTok and you're watching the latest television series instead of actually working to produce a yield that you can use in the future. If you work hard at what you do, great abundance will come to you. Great abundance does not sound like being poor. So this is why I'd like people who are like new, no, 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 like being rich is not godly. You're like literally spouting heresy. It's anti-scripture. It's completely anti-scripture because great abundance to me doesn't sound like you're scrapping around for meals. It sounds like you have more than, abundance means you have more than you need. Mm. How can you be generous if you're spending every dollar you have just to feed yourself? So we're literally commanded to be generous, which requires surplus. Generosity requires surplus. Merely talking about getting rich while living to only pursue your pleasures brings you face to face with poverty. So this is, the Bible doesn't take a, the Bible's not in the middle on this. The Bible is very clear. Like There are good things on the other side of abundance, and abundance comes through hard work. But let's share the opposite side. Let's talk about the dangers of just chasing wealth. I was reading this to you earlier. Um, you want me to read that Luke 16, that parable of the rich person? Yeah. Do you have any questions? Like you're very quiet, Jake. You're just a quiet man. What I'm thinking is, do you have to know? <clears throat> okay, I'll back up a little bit more. When Jesus was growing up, like he was fully man and fully God, for him to have that amount of basically, he had to have faith that he didn't have to worry about the crowds until a certain point. Do you think, if this is off topic, just tell me. Do you think that God told him that he was the son of God as he grew up, and then that locked him into? who he was, and he didn't doubt it, and he knew it without a shadow of a doubt, and then grew up and was okay with the preparatory season. I, yeah, I think he had the same he had the same level of confirmation that we have. Do you think you need that confirmation in your life to know how much is too much money? How little is too little money? How much money do you spend on dinner, or how much do you give away? Like, how do you, what's your compass? Well, I'll let's answer that in a second, but I, you didn't catch what I just said. He had the same confirmation that you have, mm. the same level of com- confirmation. If, if Jesus was relying on his deity, then the whole thing was a fraud. So sometimes we'll, we'll have these people get into these theological discussions. <clears throat> what does it mean to be fully man and fully God? What's well, a conundrum? Because... If he's relying on the fact that he's fully God, he's not fully man. It's not possible. Mm-hmm. So what I believe is when I study scripture, if you take it for face value, which I believe that we should, Jesus had the same level of confirmation about his identity that you have about your identity. It's in scripture. Are you a son of God? Yes. So is Jesus. Mm-hmm. Why did Jesus say that you'll do greater things than he did? if everything he did was his deity, not his sonship. He wouldn't say that. Like, he he doesn't lie. So he never would have said, like, everything you see here, you'll do greater things than I was able to do if he was only doing them through the deity of him being fully God. 
because that would be a lie. So the confirmation that Jesus had is that he was the Son of God. The confirmation now that we have because of Jesus' death and resurrection is that we are the Son of God. So we have the same power and the same level of torque in the spiritual realm that Jesus had. And I think when, when we misunderstand that, we open the door to all sorts of things. Like, we open the door to insecurity, we open the door to inferiority, we open the door to fear. Fear is a, <clears throat> how many times does the New Testament, how many times does Jesus say, stop being afraid? Many, many times. All the time, dude. So you get an indication that if there was one thing Jesus was concerned about in terms of the stripping away of power from being a son of God, it was actually fear. And when you study fear, like if you tap into Dr. Hawkins' um, map of consciousness and levels of energy, you get a really clear sense of this now scientifically. Science, the beautiful, coolest thing about science is it's validating all of this. So like science is actually validating scripture. And the more we learn about science, the more like, oh dude, that was uh, the parting of the Red Sea can be re-engineered. We don't, we don't have time to go down that rabbit hole. We'll have to do another, another bit. But it can be re-engineered scientifically. Mm -hmm. um, the molecular structure of things can be tilted around and reprioritized based on energy. So, Zui, quantum is the newest, it's like the, the frontier of, of science right now. And quantum is this idea that the world around you and the realm around you is constantly trying to interpret your intention. Constantly. So it's trying to interpret what do you believe and what do you expect and the higher your expectation is, the faster reality tries to reorganize around you. What does that sound like? Faith. It literally sounds like faith, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. God doesn't respond to your need. He responds to your faith. So you can have somebody who has a giant, giant need. And it's big and it's impossible. And you can have somebody with a small need. This, the person with the bigger faith is what draws the attention of God, not the person with the bigger need. Mm -hmm. So the, the Red Sea didn't split because all the Israelites would die. That wasn't what split, split the Red Sea. What split the Red Sea was the expectation, not of Moses, but of the people. Because if you actually look at that scripture, God gives Moses an instruction and says, why are you asking me to do this? Pull it up real fast. Let's read it. So Exodus 14.10 says, As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them 
They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians see you today. You see today. You will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Now 15 is where 15 is where it hits. Read it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Okay, so check this out. You have you have uh, all these people, and it's a it's a catastrophe. And they're like, God, God, help us, help us, help us. And God's like, yo, what are you why are you bothering me with this? Move. Have you ever caught this before? <laughs> Never caught this before. God's like, yo, why are you asking me to do this? Tell them to walk into the water. And it's the expectation that they carried with them into the water. Reorganize reality and push it aside. So we have the same, and, and now we get into quantum mechanics and quantum physics, and we have the same thing of, uh, when, you, when you look at something with an intention, the structure changes. So this is all throughout self-help literature. Um, Napoleon Hill started talking about this and the people kind of expounded on it but the level of expectation you have about a thing is your faith around that thing so this is why when you have people who get a bad report at the doctor's office and uh, you know one of, one of my pastors just had cancer two years ago and they said no I'm healed 100% and the doctor said well no you're not and she was like, no, I'm, I'm healed. I already feel it. I'm healed. And she goes back and the tumor's gone. How does this happen? We would call this a miracle, but in reality, what it is, is, is a miracle is actually a, almost an unsophisticated way to look at. This is the way God's designed the world to work. And if you showed an iPhone to someone 200 years ago, what would they call it? A miracle. They would call it a miracle. If if somebody needed to get an urgent message, 1770s, the American Revolution, somebody needs to get an urgent message to the front lines, and someone pulls out a cell phone and texts them, and it just shows up to be like, that's a miracle, we're saved. But what it is, is there's a way God has designed this world to work. And the more we explore that and tap into it, the more we realize that the Bible is God's in total command of the structure of the universe, because he built it. And when we learn how to harness it, we can control it. And so I never will ever forget the first time I started figuring this out, this aha moment, similar to probably what you just had with, with Moses. And uh, there's a verse in the Bible where it's like, laughter is good for the bones and sorrow. Um, I don't remember what that what the verse is. It's Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Laughter is good medicine? Yeah. Proverbs 17, 22. Read it. <clears throat> Here it is. A cheerful heart, Proverbs 17, 22. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Dries up the bones. Dries up the bones. The calcium. It's like sucking. So it dries up. When you have positive psychology now, they've done studies on this, where when someone laughs their peripheral vision expands and the blood actually 
moves through the veins faster and easier. And when somebody is stuck in a place of despondency and depression, their, their blood actually thickens and it can't move as quickly through the body. So this is Proverbs with thousands of years ago, this person saying, cheerful attitude is good for the bones. So the calcium and the blood, the way the blood moves through the body. How do they know this? They didn't. They just, God said it and, and they took it and ran with it. But then when you see science is actually validating scripture, it gives you a whole new spin on how, uh, what does dominion mean? Dominion means that you are in control of it. So how, how can a Christian fully live in that space of like, I, am, I have inherited everything God has inherited mm-hmm. and then not control and it's not a control in the sense of like, I need to control because that gets you into the weird idolatry things. This goes back to the motives. Like you can't live in a place where you are in full dominion and then be afraid of what's going to happen to you. Does that make sense? Yep. Hmm. All right, back to money. Um, Jesus says, this is the parable. This is Luke 16. And then we'll end here because I think that this is like the tension and we'll just leave it in tension. Jesus says, There was once a very rich man who had the finest things imaginable, living every day, enjoying his life of luxury. Outside the gate of his mansion was a poor beggar named Lazarus. It's a different Lazarus than the one he raised from the dead, I think. He lay there every day, covered in sickness, and all the neighborhood dogs would come and lick his wounds. The only food he had to eat was the garbage that the rich man threw away. So we do have an indication right here that this rich man was not trying to take care of this person. He was throwing the food away. He wasn't giving the food to him. So like that's our first indication that this rich man was not actually a kingdom man. He wasn't, his motive was not, I need to inherit resources so that I can take care of the people that are in need. He was just throwing his food away. That's stupid. One day Lazarus died and the angels of God came and escorted his spirit into paradise And then the day came when the rich man also died. In hell, he looked up from his torment and he saw Abraham in the distance and Lazarus the beggar was standing beside him in glory. So theologically, this is like pre-death and resurrection. Um, And there's this, you know, Abraham's bosom, they call it. It's this place that people went before Jesus. So the rich man is in hell. He shouts, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus, who is the poor beggar, to dip his finger in water and come cool my tongue from an agony. But Abraham responded, my friends, don't you remember? Oh man, that's like the worst thing you could ever hear. Don't you, don't you remember? When you were alive, you had all you desired surrounded in luxury while Lazarus had nothing. Now Lazarus is in the comforts of paradise and you are in agony. Besides, between us is a huge chasm that cannot be bridged. It keeps anyone from crossing one realm to the other. So after life is done, there are blocks. We're back into a place where you cannot cross over. But when we're here, there's this this beautiful like symmetry here where everyone has the ability to cross into new realms. But then once you're done, that maneuverability is taken away. So the rich man said, then let me ask you, Father, please send Lazarus to my relatives and tell him to witness to my five brothers and warn them not to end up where I am in this place of torment. But Abraham replied, they've already had enough warning. 
They have the teachings of Moses and the prophets, and they must obey them. The rich man said, but what if they're not listening? If someone from the dead were to go to warn them, they would surely repent. There's another indication here. This man uses the word repent, which means he knew, right? Mm -hmm. He knew his motives were wrong. He knew he was not adhering to the way that he, the kingdom instructed him to adhere to. And so repent is an interesting word you can unpack. Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and they won't listen to the prophets, they won't listen if someone is raised from the dead. And now we have the tension of when you chase wealth with the wrong motive, you get accumulation and you accrue resources, but not for the purpose of enriching and equipping the people around you that need it. We get to see this is, this is the dichotomy here. This is where the, the rubber meets the road, so to speak, on like, man, when, when there's the intention of self-enrichment rather than the lifting of people and missions around you, that's when it flips from a godly form of wealth to what they call evil and the wicked. And this is what Jesus was talking about. When Jesus is like, it's, it's easier for a poor person, like, it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than for you know, a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What he's talking about is like, there is a, you've heard these stories of uh, old, old stories and um, you know, people, pirates and mermaids and how there's this alluring. In fact, it was a, like an old uh, Greek story about how, I forget who it was off the top of my head. I don't know who, it, I, I'll think about it later. He ties himself up to the middle of the ship because he doesn't want to give in to his own vulnerabilities and cravings. And there's a calling, there's like a siren call. And he knows that he's not capable of saying no in the moment. Do you remember this story mm -mm. I'm talking about? Um, it's one of the Greek classics. He ties himself to the middle of the ship. If somebody's watching this, put it in the comments because I forgot the name of the person at, at the moment. He's, he's got wisdom in that he understands that he can't say no and the only way he's going to make it through this alive is to remove his own vulnerabilities by tying himself to the stern of the ship. Generosity, gen, the, the, check, check this out, generosity is a equivalent in the world of wealth because there is a siren call to wealth. There's a temptation to wealth. There's a temptation to getting really rich that slowly begins to speak to your heart and it slowly begins to twist. And you begin to believe that I am rich because I did the right thing, which is technically a principle that has truth to it. Because Proverbs says that there is a way to work hard and get profit. So the lies of, of the Christian person the lies that are going to get you are not the blatant false lies. They're the lies that are 90% true and 10% false. It twists you. And if there were not truth to it, it would not have power. So when you believe that you are the one that got yourself to a place of prominence, there's truth to that. The Bible says so. But then when you forget the verse in, Genera uh, in uh, Genesis that says God is the one who's given you the ability to create wealth, when you forget that, you remove 10% and that 10% craters the entire thing. And so what generosity is, is it's a, it's a cleanser, it's a filter, it's an offensive warfare against our own temptations that we don't need God.
And so whenever you're feeling like you're in a place where you don't have enough or you're feeling, you're the, the, the god of mammon, which is essentially, if you study the seven mountains of kingdom, there's education and media, economy, and they're all tied to different temptations. And the, the, god, the, the mountain of economy, what the enemy will try to do is he'll try to tempt you that you'll never have enough which is why rich people struggle with anxiety even more than poor people. And it'll try to get you to go out and convince you that the only way for you to have enough is to get more, 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 more. And all of a sudden, you won't even you won't even notice when it happens. You shift away from God being the prominent provider in your life to yourself. And this is where people err and they become evil. Not evil in the sense of like they're going to do a lot of bad things to a bunch of people, but evil in the sense that they're disconnected from God now, and they have they don't have the proximity, they don't have the connection with God, because they're so connected with themselves, and the the equivalent of tying yourself in the center of the ship because you don't trust yourself is generosity, and there are times in my life when I will feel like I don't have enough, and I know that it's not from God. God will never tell you that you don't have enough. He will never tell you that um, he'll never tell you anything that leads you to do something that is an error. And so my response to that is usually to give. And that doesn't mean tithing. Sometimes that means I'm going to find somebody who needs a car and buy them a car. I'm going to, I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna show money that it is not my God. Mm. And I'm gonna show the world around me that I don't need that to be who I am. And this generosity is just the best principle in ever because it allows you to align yourself back to Jesus in a way that very few other things can. Make sense? Yeah. Cool. Um, I gotta go, but uh, this was good. If you're watching this, let us know. We're trying something new. Um, if you're listening to this on Spotify or podcast, hop over to YouTube. You can grab the whole discussion and you get to see us kind of interact. And if you wanna talk about this more, let us know, put a comment below. Uh, we're gonna start talking about more of these things because I believe that this is actually a, it's a multiplier. So. Love you. See ya.